Well, good evening, men. Excited to look at 1 John chapter 3. I hope you have gotten some cupcakes and coffee and hot chocolate, and there's more back there if you need to. I hope you enjoy that. Um, hey, listen, in case you haven't seen it, I had not seen it. Someone just shared it with me, but the uh, parade that's going on in Kansas City, there was a shooting there this afternoon. They're saying what I just read was one dead and 20 injured. I don't know if that's the latest but that's what I'm reading, and so I just want us to spend just a couple minutes around the table just praying for the city of Kansas City, praying for the families that have been affected by this shooting, praying for the shooter. I don't know anything about the situation other than what I just told you, but I want you to take some time, pray over that situation, and pray that what the devil has meant for evil, the Lord would be able to use for good. So let's spend some time around the tables praying for Kansas City right now. Lord Jesus, we love you, and Lord, we just want to lift up the city of Kansas City to you. Lord, everybody that's involved in what's happened there, Lord, we lift up these families of these 20 people that have been injured from this shooting. We lift up this family of the one that has died from the shooting. Lord, we lift up the family of the shooter, and Lord, we don't know all the particulars to this situation, but you do. And Lord, you love each and every one of those people. So Lord, I pray, Lord, what the devil has meant for evil, Lord, you would turn around and use for good. I pray you'll bring glory to yourself through this, although we may not be able to see what that looks like right now. God, I pray you'll comfort where comfort is needed. I pray you'll encourage where encouragement is needed. I pray you'll provide where provision is needed. Lord, I pray you'll protect where protection is needed. I pray you'll give wisdom to the people there that'll be making decisions on how to love on these families and to take care of all the different things that need to happen there. And Lord, we know that we live in a world that is dying, that is full of sin, and Lord, that the devil is trying to still kill and destroy whatever he can get his hands on. So Lord, I pray tonight, Lord, that you will draw people to yourself, and Lord, that you will be honored and glorified. And Lord, I pray that through this tragedy, Lord, that believers would come around the people there at that parade, and that the gospel will go out, and I pray that people will be saved. So, Lord, do a work that only you can do, and, Lord, we'll continue to lift these people up, these families up in prayer. We love you. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Well, I hope that you were able to come to the men's conference Friday night. We had a great time. It was sweet that Pastor was there to welcome and kick off the, the night and then to hear from Robbie Gallaty and Bartholomew Orr. They did a wonderful job, and it was just good to see men in the house of God worshiping the Lord and hearing from the Word of God. And so I was encouraged by that. Um, I'm encouraged to see you tonight. Now, some of you just came because you got a cupcake. And uh, you're going to try to get another cupcake before you leave. And that's okay, but hopefully you've come because you desire to hear from the Word. And you need and desire fellowship with other believers. And I love what it says when it says, as iron sharpens iron, one man does another. And so we want to continue to have some fellowship and conversation around the table. And so today, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3. And it is packed full of a whole lot of truths. We could spend weeks just unpacking this one chapter. And I'm going to give you some things from there that we see in the text. And then I'm going to challenge you with something at the end. But before we do that, I want us to answer a question around the table. And here's what I want us to discuss around the table. What are some marks of a true Christian? Now you say, why do you have to put the word true before? Why can't you just say, what are some marks of a Christian? Well, a lot of people call themselves Christians. 
As a matter of fact, there are probably uh, people that you know that you have never seen go to church that call themselves Christians, and not only they've never gone to church, but their mouth certainly doesn't sound like they're a Christian. Their lifestyle certainly doesn't look like they're a Christian, and you've never seen anything what this what this chapter talks about in righteousness. You've never seen anything righteous come out of their lives, but they call themselves Christians. I lived in Alabama for five years. My dad pastored a church there, and it was a known fact in the state of Alabama there are more Southern Baptists than there are people. And the reason is, is because they've been a member of four or five different churches, and the churches have never taken them off the roll. So if you put them all together, because everybody goes to church. Everybody's a Christian, or so they call themselves, because we live in the Bible Belt. But what this chapter is actually talking about, and First John is focusing on, is the differential differentiating between false prophets, false believers, and actual believers. And so what I want us to talk a little bit about is what does a true Christian look like? What are some marks of a true Christian? You know, going to church doesn't make you a Christian just like standing in a garage doesn't make you a car or going to McDonald's doesn't make you a Big Mac. You've heard that before. But that's what a lot of people have in their mind. If I go to church, I'm a Christian. This chapter talks a whole lot about what a Christian actually looks like, and I want us to discuss that around the table. So take a few minutes around the table, and let's discuss it, and I'm going to help get this table set back up because it's having some issues here. All right, here we go. All right, guys, I hope that maybe you've talked about some of the things that you see in a believer's life when they claim to be a Christian. Um, maybe it's by outward things that you see. Maybe it's by things that you hear. I think this text does a good job of walking us through some traits, some marks, if you will, of what you will see in a believer's life. But I think we can go to a lot of different passages in Scripture like that. So I want us to walk through, I want us to look at nine marks. It came out to nine. I know there's more in here, but that's just kind of where it was today. But I want us to look at these nine things, but then I want to tie it off at the end by making sure that we understand this is not a checklist for us to try to accomplish each one of these things. Because if so, we fall into the realm of legalism. But yet these are actually markers that you are walking with Christ and that Christ is doing these things through you. Because there are a lot of people that do a lot of good things. There are people that serve all over the world. There are people that give money all over the world. There are people that do things for people all over the world, and that doesn't necessarily mean they're a Christian. So some of, a lot of these things, a lot of them, they would meet that criteria, but it doesn't mean they're a Christian. And so I want us to make sure that we're just careful as we look at these markers that these are not things that we're trying to accomplish. These are byproducts of us walking with Jesus. So let's look beginning in verse 1. 1 John 3, 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Marker number one of a true Christian, a true Christian is a child of God. A true Christian is a child of God. Now, it absolutely blows my mind that Jesus Christ went to the cross and he shed his blood, died a horrific death to pay a price that he did not owe so that he could pay, take our place and give us the free gift of salvation so that he could adopt us into his family. If you have accepted Jesus Christ into your life, you are a joint heir with Christ is what the Bible says. Let that sink in. Let it sink in. 
that one day where Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and where I'm going, you can't go with me. But one day, I will come and get you again, and I will take you home with me. And he's preparing a place for us. I can't comprehend that, that you and I are children of God if we have given our lives to Jesus. But here's the deal. If you're trying to look at somebody and evaluate whether or not they're a believer, it's kind of difficult to look at them and say, yep, they're a child of God, just based off are they a child or not. There's other markers that you can look for. And by the way, I'm not asking us to look at other people right now. I'm asking you to use these markers as a mirror to look into and say, do I see these things in my life? These are a mirror to look into to say, do I see these things in my life? Look again at verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. The second marker I want us to see tonight is a true Christian looks different from the world. We ought to look different. We ought to smell different. We ought to act different. We ought to look different. We ought to talk different. As a matter of fact, The Bible calls us to be the aroma of Christ. When you enter a room, you should literally be bringing Jesus with you so that the people in there, when you walk out of the room, say there's something different about that person. We're the aroma of Christ. I, I ask you a question. Does your actions point people to Jesus or turn them away from Jesus? By the way, I'm asking these questions to myself as well, but we should look different from the world. As a matter of fact, 1 Peter 2.9 says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I pray every Sunday morning with the staff here at seven o'clock in the worship center. And if you don't know this, Brother Steve started this when he came here. But on Sunday mornings, the staff meets at 7, and we each take a row in the worship center, and we just walk by each chair, and we just touch them, and we just pray over every chair in the worship center. And then we go up to the balcony, and we pray over every chair in the balcony. And then we come up front, right in front of where pastor preaches, and we just pray over what God's going to do that day. And you know, there's sometimes I pray certain things, and sometimes I don't, but there's some things I pray every single time. And one of the things I pray is, Lord, today... Let people taste and see that you are good. Take them out of darkness into your marvelous light. God does something, and what he does when he does that is he begins to change you. You begin to look different than the world. When you look at this passage, it says you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Now, I want you to stop and think about this word priest because it immediately takes me back to the Old Testament, It immediately takes me back to the Levites. And if you go and read, especially in the first few books of the Bible, you will see, especially around there in Exodus and Leviticus, you'll see where God calls the Levites to live differently than the rest of the tribes of Judah. As a matter of fact, he calls them to wear certain types of clothing so that they are distinguished. When you have a bunch of people walking, you'd be able to look and say, that's a Levite. You would know by based off what they were wearing. Not only what they were wearing, but you, he, God got even more detailed. Even the way they stitched their clothing. There was a specific way they were supposed to stitch their clothing. There were certain colors that they wore. You would know just by looking at them that they were a Levite. What does it say here in First Peter? It says, you are a royal priesthood. You are to look different than the world. As a matter of fact, you, you, you hear it said so often that we are not 
This is not our home. We're sojourners. We're foreigners. You know, people like to talk about aliens, and are aliens real? I, you know, I, can, I don't know. I don't think that's my job to try to figure that out, but I can tell you this. We, we really are aliens in this world. When you give your life to Jesus, this is no longer your home. We're just passing through, and life is just a vapor. I did a funeral a few weeks ago. I shared with y'all, and, and, and the lady was 88. She was 88 or 89 years old, and her husband's sitting there. He's 93, and if they had made, if she had made it five more months, they would have been married 70 years, 70 years. I can't comprehend that. And I asked him, I said, how has it been for 70 years? He said, it's the best years of my life. He said, but I could tell you this. He said, it has gone by like that, just like that. And he leaned over and he kissed his wife and she was in um, hospice and couldn't speak. And he said, I would give anything just to hear her voice again. We're passing through. She knew Jesus as her personal Lord and Savior. And I believe when she closed her eyes for the last time, she opened her eyes and saw Jesus. You know why? Because this is not our home. We're passing through. We are to look different than the world. And this is why I believe it's so important that we are careful with what we put inside of us. Because how many of you know what you hang around the most is typically what you become like? We like to tend to think that only is true with children, but it's not. You and I kind of take on what we're around. I've heard people's vocabulary change based off who they hang out with. I've even heard my dad when I was younger, he had not been to Louisiana in 15 years, which is where he grew up. And he did not have a Cajun accent. He spoke like he was from Arkansas. We went down to Louisiana. We hadn't been there five hours. And I'm like, who is this guy? That, that thick Cajun accent came back. I didn't even know he had it in him. And it, but it was just all, that's all he was hearing. And kind of become what you're around. And that's why it is so pivotal not only for our children, that we are careful what we put inside of us, but for you and I, men, I challenge you to think about what you listen to. You say, you're telling me I can only listen to Christian music? I'm not telling you what to do. I'm telling you that you need to be thinking on things above. And if you can listen to a song and it points you to Jesus, then that's probably a pretty good song to listen to. And if it doesn't, I'd probably get rid of it. So you, you interpret that however you want to. And I would encourage you and challenge you to be very careful with what you watch through the television. And I would be very careful and I would challenge you what kind of social media things you're looking at because what you put in is what will come out. See, we're not supposed to look like the world. We're supposed to look like Jesus. We're supposed to talk like Jesus. We're supposed to act like Jesus because this is not our home. I heard... A preacher down in Alabama say one time, he said, uh, if you were to put on some white gloves and go out and play in the mud, would the mud get glubby or would the gloves get muddy? The first time I heard him say it, I thought, what in the world is he talking about? And he said, it's very simple. If you mess around with sin, it will rub off on you. He said, you have got to stay away from it you got to stay away from it. We are not to look like the world. We're to look differently. Look at verse look at verse 2 beginning in verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. 
And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, just as he, talking about Christ, is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. We could get bogged down here for a while. We're not going to spend a ton of time here, but he's really talking about, really be careful here. Look at what he says in verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. He's talking about Christ. Christ came to pay for our sin, and in Christ there is no sin. Verse six, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. You get to verse six, and it's kind of a gut punch. It says, no one who sins is in him. Now, I don't know about you, but I sin today. I mean, if we're just being honest, we're gonna be transparent. I sin today. So do I step back and say, oh my goodness, I'm not a Christian. I've sinned. I told you a few weeks ago, Dr. Rogers always said, when you become a Christian, you're not going to become sinless, but you should sin less. God should be drawing you close to himself, and you should have less and less sin in your life. What he's talking about here, I believe when you look at the Greek word, he's talk, talking about sins here. He's talking about habitual sins. He's talking about uh, sin that you go after and you stay in that type of sin. So the third marker of a Christian is he has no habitual sin. Has no sin that he stays in and wallows in. Now I know what you're thinking. Derek, I have sin in my life that I've struggled with for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, whatever the case may be. But let me ask you a question. If the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, has the Holy Spirit ever convicted you of that? Have you ever felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Have you ever confessed that sin to the Lord? Have you ever repented of that sin and then gone back to it? Well, about three of you have, and I'll make four, okay? All right, so, we're, so there's a few of us have. But I think if all of us were honest, we would. And so we have to step back and say, well, does that mean I'm not a Christian because I've had sin in my life? What he's talking about here is when it becomes your way of life. When this sin is who you are, you are not in Christ. You're in darkness. And a lot of people say, well, I'm in the light. But remember, the devil, when he was in heaven, they talked about, it talks about how beautiful he was. And that's exactly what he wants to do. He wants to trick us, make us think that we're walking in the light when we're walking in darkness. And I'm telling you right now, he has pulled the wool over so many people's eyes, and they're walking in sin, not walking in Christ. Just because you put a suit on and come to church doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because you smile and carry a big Bible doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because you read your Bible often doesn't mean you're a Christian. But a marker of a Christian is that he has no habitual sin in his life. Look at verse 7. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. It makes it seem like you can, there is no sin in a person that is saved. Look at verse 10. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. What is an obvious characteristic of a lost person? They live in sin. They live in sin. There's no conviction. There's no repentance. Now they may 
get caught, and they may be a little sorry, not because of the sin that's in their life, but because they got caught, but there's no conviction of that sin. It says, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. You know, those words there, when you see practice, it's like, so is that something that like we get together once a week for an hour and we practice towards it like basketball or baseball? It's not talking about that at all. It's pointing you back very similar to what he talks about, what the psalmist talks about in Psalm 1. That a a righteous man, a man that walks with God, walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sits in the way of sinners, nor, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. It says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in this law he meditates day and night. You see the difference? A lost person is living in sin. A righteous person is living in Christ. And so the fourth marker that I want us to see tonight is he does what is righteous. He does what is righteous. You say, well, that may count me out because I've done a lot of things that aren't righteous. But what he's talking about here here is that he seeks, he desires to do righteous things. Now, here's what's interesting. You and I oftentimes will try to make ourselves do what is right. That's not what he's calling us to do because that's a religion. Jesus is talking about a relationship. When you have a relationship with somebody, you desire to do things for them. And you will oftentimes do things because of them. For instance, those of you that have a sweet thing at home probably got them something today for Valentine's Day. And if you didn't, I've got extra cupcakes back there. Grab a couple of those and write them a note on the way out, okay? And you will thank me later, okay? But hopefully you did something. Why? Because you love them. Because you love them. And so what happens is when we love God and we see God's love for us, we want to do what God wants us to do. But here's the thing. We can still sit back and say, I want to do what God wants me to do. But the issue is we can become so legalistic in that we are not focused on our relationship with Christ. We're just focused on doing all of these things. When I was a little boy, you would get an envelope for church. I don't know if anybody remembers these, but on the front of that envelope, you would write your name, and you would write how much money you were going to give to the church. It was your tithe, and then underneath it, you would check these different boxes. I've read my Bible each day this week. Um, I've invited a friend to church. I've shared the gospel. Anybody else remember those envelopes? And I, I know some churches still have them, and you know what? I like the accountability personally. I like that accountability. I like somebody looking me in the eyes and said, have you been giving to the Lord lately? I like that. I, I think as men, we need that. As a matter of fact, I think we need more of it. I like it when somebody says, have you had any impure thoughts lately? You, you know, are you, are you walking with the Lord? Are you thinking pure? I like that. I think we should do that. I like it when somebody holds me accountable in those areas. But here's what happened for me. It became a checklist for me, not because I got to do these things. I desired to do these things. But my deal was every week I was making sure I did all these things so that I could check these boxes off so I could put my envelope into that plate and so that somebody at the church would see that I was a good person. Do you see that that is not righteousness, Christ's righteousness? That is self-righteousness. You say, well, you were still doing the right things, but I was doing them for the, all the wrong reasons. You see, what happens is when we follow Christ, it's Christ in us. He changes our mind, will, and emotions. He changes our desires. You read those passages about praying according to God's will, and it will be given to you. 
You say, well, I've prayed about all kinds of things. They weren't given to me, so am I not walking with the Lord? What it probably means is you weren't praying in accordance to his will. Because here's the deal. When you get closer to Jesus, your prayer life begins to change, and it begins to look more like Jesus. All of a sudden, you realize you're not praying for every little thing that you want. You're starting to focus on other people and praying for other people. You start focusing on God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you quit worrying about all these little things that don't amount to anything. And you start focusing on who he is and what he desires. He changes your desires. So a mark of a true Christian is he does what is right. He does what is right, what is righteous. So I got a question uses this word righteous right here, but what does that mean? What does it mean? What does doing what is righteous mean? What does that look like? If we're saying it's a marker, if we're saying we can actually see that in someone else's life or see it in our life, my life, what does that look like? If I don't know what to look for, then I got nothing to look at. So I want you to take a few moments around the table. I want you to discuss it. What does it mean doing what is righteous? What does that mean? Ready, set, go. All right, guys, I hope you've shared some good stuff around the table of what it looks like to be a righteous man. You know, when I think of that word righteous, meaning right, you and I cannot be righteous without Christ. In the best moment of our entire life without Christ, the, the, the best five seconds are as nothing before him. We can't do anything righteous, only he can, but he can through us. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. When I think of that word righteous, it takes me back to the Shema, back in Deuteronomy, where it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he goes on to say there in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he goes on to tell them to then teach their children how to do that same thing. But you know, you can't really teach somebody how to do something that you don't know how to do yourself. Uh, When I was a Probably in middle school or high school, there was a Super Bowl commercial that came out, and I, I probably should have thought about it and put it up on here, but you never know nowadays. You can't watch the commercials, you know. I mean, we, we mute those things at, during the Super Bowl because you just never know what you're going to get in there. We just turned halftime off because I thought there is no telling what's going to come on that screen, so we just turned it off completely. But there was a Super Bowl commercial that came out, of, and it was a, I think it was a Toyota. It was about a car, so what throwing a baseball has to do with a car, I don't know. But it was a dad and son in the front yard, and the dad and son were, were playing catch. You remember the days when you used to go outside and actually see dads and sons throwing the baseball in the backyard? When I was a boy, people did that. Nowadays, most, most men pay somebody else to teach their son how to do that. As a matter of fact, I read an article a while back. It said the most detrimental thing to youth sports in America is dads that work all day and pay someone else to teach their kids. That's a whole other story. But this commercial comes on. It's a father and son. They're throwing baseball, and the son's form is terrible. The camera's on the son, and he's, he's throwing the ball like this. And all of a sudden, it pans over to dad. Does anybody know it? Has anybody seen this commercial? It's, it's fantastic. You've got to go look it up now. And it's probably not Toyota. I don't remember who it is. But you look over, and the dad says, son, you're almost there. It's so close. Try it again. And the dad goes, just like that, and you watch the commercial, you're like, what is going on here, you know? This dad obviously had no idea. Now, he's a hero to his son. His son doesn't know any different. But dad has no idea to teach him because you know why? Nobody's ever taught him. It's really not his fault, to be honest with you. Nobody has ever taught him. And so what it says there in Deuteronomy is that you are to learn to love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
soul, mind, and strength. And then what you do is once you learn how to do that, you teach your children how to do it. And what does it say? It says you teach them when they rise up and when they lie down. And when you're walking along the wayside and when you eat, men, that to me is what righteousness looks like. It is going after Jesus with everything you've got and bringing people along with you. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. And so he calls us, a marker is to, um, to do what is right. Look at verse 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother, and for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do you remember the story of Cain and Abel? It said that Abel had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And Cain got jealous because Cain did not do what God had called him to do. And so Cain does what? He kills his brother. But it says in verse 11 that we're to love one another. What's a marker of a true Christian is someone that loves one another. Someone that loves one another. What does love look like? The best definition I have of love is about 2,000 years ago, Jesus stretched out his arms. He laid down on a cross, and they nailed him to it. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He sacrificed his life for you and I so that we could have eternal life. Because apart from that, there is no eternal life for you and I. Only through Christ. That's what love is. It's sacrificial. It's unconditional. I met with a guy today, and he was sharing with me a situation he's having in his business. And um, there's somebody there that he's just trying to decide whether or not he's going to continue to serve because this individual stands for a lot of things that he doesn't as a Christian. And what does he do? How does he respond? Does he continue to serve? What, what, what is he going to do? He's in a tough spot. And I told him, I said, you know, only thing I can tell you is this, that you might be the only Jesus this person comes in contact with. And I believe you can love somebody, but still boldly share the love of Christ with them. You can love somebody and still confront them on sin. You can love somebody and still share with them what God's word says. But do you love one another? And I believe the picture we've been given is of sacrifice, not here of Cain and Abel, but the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So, so we have seen this whole picture of love, and that is a true mark of a Christian. Do you love one another? Remember, Jesus said, when asked, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor as yourself. So we are to love one another. 1 John three thirteen says, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. If the world hates you. Now, the first thing that we talked about uh, the, or number two thing is looks different from the world, but now here we find ourselves a little bit later in the passage, and it says don't be surprised if you find yourself hated by the world. Why would the world hate you? Well, I think we're seeing the results of that now in the culture we live in today is that so many people, the world is telling us, the government is telling you and I that we can't share what we believe, but everybody else seems to be able to live out what they believe. And they're telling everybody else to stand up what they believe in, but we have to be quiet. I'm going to tell you right now, we do not have to be quiet. We do not have to bow to the altar of political correctness. We only bow to Jesus. And you can do what is right through love, and the world will hate you. I can promise you that. Because the devil hates you. 
The devil hates everything of God. And so if you're walking with God, the world is going to hate you. Look at verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. In other words, if you are saved, you're walking in light and you see love through them. But if you don't, you're going to abide in death. You are not a Christian. As a matter of fact, you are going to experience not only physical death, but you're going to experience a spiritual death eternally in hell. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Verse 17, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love the world or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. He says this, you're gonna know if somebody's a believer by how they treat people, and specifically by how they treat people in need. The next marker of a Christian is they show compassion for the needy. They show compassion for the needy. They see people in need, and God stirs in their heart. How do you know if you're supposed to give money to a homeless person? How do you know if you're supposed to help an orphan? How do you know if you're supposed to help a widow? How do you know if you're supposed to stop and help the guy on the side of the road that has a flat tire? How do you know if you're supposed to help your neighbor cut their grass when they're out there and their lawnmower's not working? How do you know? How do you know those things? I can tell you how you know. If that thought comes into your mind, I should help them, that's the Holy Spirit. I've heard Brother Steve say this so many times. You know why? Because you're not that good. (laughs) And the devil's not going to tell you to help people. He don't want you to help anybody. He wants you to focus on yourself and what you want, not on other people. He wants you to focus on yourself and what his plans are for you. You're not that good because, let's be honest, you don't want to cut your own grass. You certainly don't want to go cut your neighbor's. So it has to come from God. And I've heard people say this, well, you know, Sometimes I feel like I'm supposed to give somebody money, and I don't do it. We talked about this in our life group on Sunday. Somebody asked the question. You know, what happens when you feel like you're supposed to give money to a homeless person? I I used to struggle with this because I don't know what they're going to do with the money. Maybe they're going to go buy drugs. Maybe they're going to go buy alcohol. Maybe they're going to do something even worse than that. I don't know. And you say, well, I'm not going to give them the money because I'm not going to partake in that. And I heard Brother Steve say this years ago, and it fixed me of that. Fixed me of that. This is what Brother Steve said. He said, if the Holy Spirit prompts you to give money to somebody and you don't do it, you are walking in disobedience. It is not your responsibility for what they do with the money. It is your responsibility to obey God. It's your responsibility to obey God instantly. Don't worry about what they're going to do with the money. Well, what they buy drugs? Did God tell you to give it? You got to give it. That's, That's the whole deal. Did God tell you to do this? Do it. Follow through with it. Do what he calls you to do. A true mark of a Christian is they show compassion for the needy. Think about this. Jesus had spoken. Jesus was tired. Jesus got in a boat. He wanted to get away from people. He ends up going up on a mountain. He's trying to get away by himself. The crowds are following him. They're pushing in. Jesus is preaching. He's teaching. The people are hungry. They're starving. The Bible says that Jesus told them disciples to have them sit down in different groups, and they sat down on the grass out there, and this is what it says, and Jesus looked upon them with what? Compassion. And then he follows up with this, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
You know, we look around this world and we see people going all over the place, and they are sheep without a shepherd. But you and I have the great shepherd that we can share with everyone. But it begins oftentimes by meeting a physical need. That whole deal of people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care, I believe it's true in ministry. As a matter of fact, how often do you see in Scripture that Jesus healed people or he fed them and then he told them to go share or live a certain way or whatever? Jesus had the rich young ruler come to him and say, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus looked at him and said, sell everything that you have and follow me. Isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't say that to anybody else? That's the only one. Because Jesus looked at his heart and knew where the issue was. See, Jesus was meeting a physical need in that man's life as well because the physical need was this. He needed to not be dependent upon what he loved. He needed to be dependent upon Jesus. And so Jesus meets physical needs. A mark of a true Christian is someone that shows compassion. Look at verse 20. And whatever our hearts, our heart condemns us, For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. We have confidence before God. I want that phrase to sink in. We have confidence. Can you even imagine what it would have been like for Moses to stand before the burning bush? I want you to think about it for a moment. He's climbed up on this mountain. He stumbles across this bush. It is on fire but it is not being consumed. And he talks to God. Can you even imagine what that would have been like? You and I have the ability to stand before the burning bush each and every day because Jesus Christ died, tore the veil in two, and gave us complete access to the Father. And so we can talk to him at any point, at any time, and we can have confidence going before Lord, the Lord when we pray in his will. Another mark of a true Christian is he is confident before the Lord. Now listen, I want to make sure that we understand this. I'm not saying he's arrogant. I'm not saying he's cocky. I'm not saying he's entitled. I'm saying he's confident coming before the Lord. Why? Because the Lord's already done all the work. He just desires the relationship with you, that you would come before him confidently because of what Christ has done on the cross. Look at verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Now, how many of you have prayed for something that you never got? Anybody? Six of us. Wow, okay. And whatever we ask, we receive. Y'all need to go on some of y'all's prayer lists. What needs to happen? And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commands us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Here's the last thing I want you to see, is that a mark of a true Christian is he sees his prayers answered. He sees his prayers answered. Now, I'm here to tell you God answers every one of your prayers, every single one of them. And aren't you thankful that God also answers the prayers you never pray? Aren't you thankful that God is a God of grace and mercy? How many of you prayed one time for somebody that you were dating that you really wanted to be your spouse, and then it ended up not working out, and you were heartbroken, and you ended up marrying someone else, and you could look back and thank God that he did not answer your prayer at that time? Aren't you thankful? I know I am. 
I can look back at things in my life and think, if I only would have, if I only would have, and then you get on the other side of it, and hindsight's always 20-20. You get back and say, thank you, Jesus, you didn't give me what I asked for. But see, he still answered you. He still answered you. He just gave you something better. He gave you something different. And so he always answers us. But what he's talking about here is that when we pray in accordance to God's will, God answers all those prayers when we answer according to God's will. When I look at these nine things, here's what scares me. I can't do all these things. I, my, my whole day, Jeff, you and I were texting about this today. My whole day would be wrapped up in, 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 in walking around with a checklist. Okay, I can't say that. Oh, I can't do that. Oh, I've got to go do this. Oh, I've got to go do that. And what happens is this becomes an exhausting list of legalism. But I will submit to you that this is not the focus. These are byproducts of walking with Jesus. These are marks that we see in a believer's life. So here's something I want you to understand is do not let legalism guide you. Let the Holy Spirit fill you. Do not let legalism guide you. Let the Holy Spirit fill you. I was talking to Noah Siddham today, and he recently taught through the fruits of the Spirit. And I want to read this to you because the fruit of the Spirit. I want to read it to you because um, you've heard this so many times. It's a beautiful passage, but if we're not careful, this becomes a legalistic checklist as well. Look at what it says. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to, Jesus, to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. If I look at those things, they can become a list of a checklist. They can become legalistic, and I can become focused on, okay, I've got to be kind today. I've got to be faithful today. I've got to be gentle today, and it becomes exhausting. But what we have to realize is nowhere in this passage does it say these are the fruits of the believer. These are the fruits of the Christian. These are the fruits of who you are. This is what it says, and look at it. It says what? But the fruit of the Spirit Jesus is the one that does these things. How many of you know somebody that when they got saved, all of a sudden they just got, you see, we would look at them and say, they got radically saved. I mean, everything about them changed. They used to have a foul mouth, and now that's gone. They used to desire these things, and now God's given them these desires. They used to walk like this, and now they walk like this. They used to spend their time doing this, and now they spend their time doing this. And it's just, it's a complete 180 degree, which by the way is what God calls all of us to. He calls us to repent of that lifestyle and to follow after him. But what we have to understand is that is the work of Christ, not that man. Because if he was trying to focus on those things, very few of those things would ever happen. But if you focus on Jesus, the Holy Spirit can do all of these things through you. He can do all of these things through you. I want us to have one more table discussion question because there's something in this passage that I want to point out. It says... Back in, um, back in 1 John 22 here, it says, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, in Galatians, right where I was. It says, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I want you to think about that phrase right there. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What does that mean? Practically speaking, 
What does that look like in someone's life? I want us to discuss around the table. What does crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires look like? I want you to discuss around the table. Ready, set, go. Matthew 16, 24 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There's a lot of people that like the idea of church. There's a lot of people that like the idea of being a Christian. There's a lot of people that like the idea of following Christ, but they're unwilling to do this. And by the way, this is not a one-time thing. I don't even know that this is a daily thing. This can be a moment-to-moment thing. How many of you have ever been feeling like, man, I've I've got it going on. I had a good quiet time this morning. I was in the Word. I was praying. Everything's going great. And then you get that phone call, and you just want to punch a hole in the wall. You can go from here to here, zero to 60, I mean, you know, half a second. I mean, it doesn't take anything. It can take somebody saying one thing. It can take somebody doing one thing. And you've got to come back to this. Am I going to follow my own desires or am I going to deny myself, take up my cross and follow after Christ? One of my favorite verses in the Old Testament is found in Proverbs chapter 10. It's verse 11. This is what it says, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. The passages I've shared with you tonight are all out of the NASB 95, but when I first read this passage, I read it in the King James, and this is what it says. Proverbs 10, 11, the mouth of the righteous man is a well of life, but violence covereth the mouth of the wicked. When I read that, The mouth of a righteous man is a well of life. You think about this. We've we've said this a couple times this semester. Brother Steve always says what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. What you put inside of you is what is going to come out of you. So I got a question for you. What comes out of you? What are you putting inside of you? And I, 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 I think I've got the answer. You see, wells are what? Now, we're not talking about the fish in the sea, guys, okay? Stick with me here, okay? We're talking about a well you dig down in the ground, okay? And what is the purpose of a well? Is that it would fill full of water and you'd be able to draw water from it. At this time, when this passage would have been written, there would have been two types of wells that could have been dug. One would have been a well that we understand that you would dig down, find an underground stream, and that underground stream would continually fill that well full of water, right? You could draw from it. It was cool. It was cold. It was good. It was crystal clear. It was fresh. Another type of well would have been what we would call a cistern. It would be like a holding tank. If I take a bowl and I put water in it and I set it on this table today and you come back next week, none of you want to drink that water. Why? It's become stagnant. It's probably polluted with things that were in the air and heavens knows what else. You don't want that. And what happens in a lot of people's life is they take in a lot of information in church, but what they are is a stagnant bowl of water that nobody wants to have any part of. But the beauty of what he's talking about right here, and when I read this, i never forget, I was living at home, I was in college, I went running into the, the living room where my dad was having his time with the Lord. I said, Dad, you're never going to believe what I read in Proverbs chapter 10 this morning. I read it to him, and he said, well, what, what has got you so excited? I mean, I was jumping up and down. 
I said, Dad, think about the woman at the well. Jesus in John chapter 4 is walking through Samaria. Jews did not go through Samaria. They don't want to have anything to do with the Samaritans. They would have considered the Samaritans half-breeds, people they would have not ever had contact with. They didn't like them, let alone ever have a conversation with them. Jesus is going to pass through Samaria, and his disciples try to stop him, and he said, no, you don't understand. I have something I've got to do. And he goes to the well, and the Bible says he's thirsty and he's tired. And he sits at the well. And his disciples go into town for food. And the Bible says in John chapter 4 that a woman came out at midday to draw water from the well. Here's what we've got to understand. Nobody draws water in the middle of the day. Why? It's hot. You would have gone early in the morning or late at night. You wouldn't do your heaviest lifting and carrying in the middle of the day when the sun's at its highest point. The only reason to do that is because she didn't want to be around anybody else. And when you hear Jesus speak to her, you know why. Jesus said to give me something to drink. He was thirsty. And they begin this conversation. What's interesting is no man would have ever talked to a woman, especially no Jew would have ever talked to a Samaritan woman in public. It wouldn't have happened. And yet Jesus is speaking to her. This is the divine moment that that Jesus was talking about when he told his disciples he had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. And he says to the woman, I can give you something to drink. What is it? Living water. And you will never thirst again. And this woman desires to have that living water because she's been coming here every day at noon, working, trying to get this water. And what she wants to have to do is never come back to that well again. See, she's thinking physical, and Jesus is talking spiritual. Jesus says to her that he could fill her full of living water. Who is the living water? Jesus Christ is the living water. So when I go to Proverbs chapter 10, verse 11, and I read the mouth of a righteous man is the well of life, I've got a question for you. What water is coming up through your well? What is coming out of you? We talk about these markers, somebody that has compassion on some people, somebody, some, somebody that's going after Jesus, somebody that doesn't look like the world, what is coming out of you? I've asked myself this question. If it was a mirror that I was looking in, what would I see? And guys, I submit to you that you and I can't do any of these things on our own. Apart from him, we are nothing. It is only because of Jesus Christ that we have the ability to do any of these things. And so here's my encouragement to you tonight. My encouragement to you tonight is this, and here is my challenge. I want you to ask yourself the question, are these markers present in my life? Are these markers present in my life? And if they're not, what I don't want you to do is leave this room saying I've got to do all of these things. I want you to leave this room and say, how can I follow after Jesus more than I'm doing right now? Maybe you're not reading the word on a daily basis. That's where you start. Maybe you're reading the Word, but you're not praying. That's where you start. You keep reading the Word and you pray. Maybe you're reading the Word and you're praying some, but you're not passionately praying. You're not spending intimate time with the Lord praying. Maybe that's where you need to go. I don't think every one of us are going to have the same response to the question because I think each one of us are different. I think we're in different seasons of life. I think there's different things going on in our lives. I think we're at different parts in this sanctification process. So I want to ask you the question, 
Are these markers present in your life? And if not, the answer is not, how do I do these things? The answer is, how can I get closer to Jesus? I asked myself this question yesterday morning. As I was sitting in my office reading, what am I doing right now to draw closer to Jesus that I wasn't doing a year ago or three months ago or two weeks ago or five days ago? Am I doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results? You know what that's the definition of, right? Insanity. So I want to challenge you to ask yourself the question, how am I following more in love with Jesus today? That's what I want you to leave here with tonight. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes for a minute, and I want just for a moment in silence, and I know we don't like silence, but silence is a good thing because oftentimes that's when the Spirit will move. We only have just a minute, but I want you to ask the Lord right now, Lord, what are you calling me to do? The book of James says, if you draw near to God, God will draw near to you. Lord, how do you want me to draw near to you more than what I'm doing right now? Because men, I know this, we can always give more. And sometimes that's not just more time. Sometimes that's changing how we're using the time we've been given. So I want you just for a moment just to ask the Lord, Lord, what are you calling me to do? How do you want me to draw closer to you during this time? Lord Jesus, we love you. And Lord, I love these men. I'm so thankful for them. I'm so blessed and encouraged by them. God, I pray right now that you would draw each and every one of us to yourself. And Lord, as I wrote down two things on a piece of paper in my office yesterday morning of how I want to draw closer to you, I'm not focused on how I'm going to change my life. I'm focused on falling more in love with you and letting you change my life. And I think that's the beauty of 1 John 3. It's not a checklist for you and I to do but it's pointing us to the fact that we need Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray for each man in this room, Lord, that you would draw him close to yourself, that you would convict him of anything that needs to be convicted of, and, Lord, that he would grab hold of whatever you're calling him to do. If that's reading your word, if that's praying more, if that's spending time in quiet with you, whatever that may be, God, I pray these men will stand up and do exactly what you've called them to do. Lord, I pray they'll walk in obedience to what you've called them to do. Lord, We love you, and Lord, we thank you for that sacrifice you gave us on the cross and that you offer each one of us the gift of salvation. Bless these men as they go home. Keep them safe. And Lord, we love you. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.